Hello, and again, welcome to Bit Depth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is, you say your name. <laughs> Linda Owen. Yeah. Um, hi, how are you? Hi, Santiago. <laughs> um, so, first and foremost, how do we know each other? I think the very first time I encountered you was as a fellow classmate in and you may not remember this in I do remember Dr. <laughs> uh, Hannon's class the first time that he taught the history of video game music mm-hmm. and I was curious as to what that might be and <laughs> sat in on it and you were there as a member of the class too mm-hmm. but certainly we've gotten to know each other better as you've been studying mm-hmm. piano with me in the last semester and a half or so yeah um I think there might have been a time before then, or somewhere around then, for one of my classes, I had to interview a professor, uh, and I think it was for developmental psychology or something. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's <laughs> that sounds kind of familiar. Right, yeah. Um, so it might have been for that, which was our, our first uh long form interaction yeah <laughs> um okay so the first actual question uh what do you do i teach piano <laughs> or i really like to think of it as i teach music with the piano as the medium <laughs> for teaching music um has it always been piano Yes. <laughs> there have been many other instruments and voice vocalists involved in music making with me over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of my specific teaching expertise, whatever that is, mm-hmm. it's uh, piano has been my specialty always. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever taught any other classes uh, other than applied piano? Or Yes, I have. I taught, when I first came to UCO, I taught class piano. Okay. Um, as well as applied piano. My applied students until the last couple of semesters have always been what I'd term um, late elementary, early intermediate, mostly meaning that they are more advanced than absolute beginners Mm -hmm. where class piano might be their um, placement, Mm -hmm. but not advanced students, not not ever piano majors. I do have one piano major at the moment, but this is the first time in a long (laughs) teaching career, and so it's kind of... It's it's interesting and stimulating and fun to Mm -hmm. have that perspective (laughs) added to my teaching... Uh, load at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, do you prefer teaching uh, sort of more beginner pianists? It never fails to give me a kick when <laughs> when I see a light bulb go on for somebody hmm. or hear somebody or see an expression on the face that this is something, a new idea, or that it's a, applying something new to Maybe mm-hmm. something that's already been um, been studied, but from a little different perspective. Mm-hmm. So, 
I guess that's a long way to say, yes, I really do enjoy teaching mm-hmm. people who are, who are um, becoming acquainted with music, music reading and musical forms and musical styles mm-hmm. for the first time or at an early point in, in their learning about music. Mm-hmm. Um, and have you sort of, do you think that because you teach beginner piano, uh, is there a level of piano that you have to be at or rather don't have to be at for teaching beginner piano? I think you're right, yes, that um, rightly or wrongly, um, I don't keep up my own skills to the level that they once were hmm. when I myself was a student, as a graduate student and working on a master's and then later in life working on a a doctoral degree, or even in my undergraduate work. Of course, I was a Mm -hmm. piano major, so um, I simply don't have or don't make the Mm -hmm. time to sit Mm -hmm. at the keyboard and and be a really proficient pianist. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I can play well enough to demonstrate things for my early-level students, Mm -hmm. and I can do that without practicing, but... I I do like to have something that I'm working on mm-hmm. with a performance in mind because without that it's really hard to keep yourself motivated right, to go right. to the to the <laughs> piano as as you probably know. Um so uh, I almost always have a duet partner, a piano duet partner that mm-hmm. I'm working with on something looking towards some upcoming performance mm-hmm. at the moment for instance my studio mate Jennifer Mansour and I are, um, I wish I could say polishing, although I guess we haven't really quite gotten to the point where polishing is what we're doing, but we are preparing um, four short pieces, four polonaises by Schubert Mm. that we will play for the Oklahoma City Pianist Club meeting in April. Mm. Both of us are members of that group. (laughs) Um, So then how long have you been teaching? Gosh, all my life, which is a fairly long time by now, um, probably over over 60 years. Mm-hmm. Um, in an informal sense, I guess I've really been teaching almost literally all of my life. Mm-hmm. My cousins remind me and my brother that when we were kids, we had a game called Go to the Head of the Class that involved... Uh, game players who were students and one who was the teacher and asked questions. And I always wanted to be the teacher. (laughs) So I guess there must be either something in my genes or my environment that Mm -hmm. has led me in that direction from as early as I can remember. Uh, How does teaching, uh, or rather, how is teaching different than just being a piano player and then how is being a piano player how does that contribute to teaching <laughs> i think it would really be impossible well maybe not impossible but maybe it would be impossible i'll have to ponder that idea <laughs> but what i was about to say Im- impossible to 
teach piano without having a certain level of skill of your own Mm -hmm. and a certain understanding of the process that you yourself went through in learning whatever to whatever level you did Mm -hmm. um, in order to convey that to somebody else. You'd you'd have experienced the um, difficulties and the satisfactions and hopefully found some solutions that could make a shortcut for your students Mm -hmm. to arrive at a certain level of skill or a level of understanding. And that would be um, a part of your training and experience as as a teacher Mm -hmm. to make you the most effective teacher, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think it really... I don't know that you could teach somebody, maybe going completely outside the field of music, teach anybody anything if you really had not experienced it in some way or other yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's possible, quite, quite possible, for speaking now again more specifically about music teaching, to make constructive comments and helpful um, advice, give helpful advice to someone who, whose actual performance level is higher than your own, mm-hmm. um, but not without some background and, and right. level of skill yourself. Hmm. Um, so then... Uh what was your undergraduate degree and then your other degree as well? <laughs> I have a Bachelor of Arts degree. I went to a liberal arts college. Um, that was an intentional decision on my part. Um, and in this day and age, I think specialization is much more likely to be what we do. Mm-hmm. And the degrees here at UCO, for instance, that we offer our Bachelor of Music degree Mm-hmm. in either performance or music ed, um, music theater as well, which is a an offshoot of the general mm-hmm. field of music performance. Mm-hmm. But I really l- felt that the, I guess it was my own personal interest in so many different things mm-hmm. that made me feel I wanted to study not just specifically music, although I very much love music and the study of music. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt a desire to have a broader scope on maybe the world than would be only in the field of music. And that maybe the musical expression and or teaching that I would be able to do would be informed by my knowledge of right. other areas of life, mm-hmm. other areas of study, other disciplines. Yeah. So that was my undergraduate training. I went to a small um, private school. It's still in operation. It's one of the few places it still retains the name college, McAllister <laughs> College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Got an undergraduate degree there, majoring in uh, music, piano specifically. And I also got a major in English literature. Hmm just because I was interested in it. (laughs) Um, Then went directly to Indiana University, a great big school in Bloomington, Indiana, and got a master's degree in piano performance. Um, Learned what I already suspected, that there were many, many people who were going to get a degree in piano performance, a master's degree, same as mine, who were 
had a much greater level of skill in performing mm. than I did. I didn't feel that I was bad, but certainly that there were many, many people who would, for whom people would be willing to pay money to hear their performance, mm. and I was not in that ca- in that class <laughs> myself. Did you want to be? I think probably not. Mm. Um, as I've already said, I was really very um, happy with, very much enjoyed, found satisfaction in teaching mm. and um, performance as part of that package was important, but not something that I aspired to do exclusively. Mm-hmm. In fact, the thought of being a performer and not being a teacher right. at all is makes me kind of sad, <laughs> always, always has. So I guess, I guess the teaching bug is a stronger one for me than, mm-hmm. the, than the performance if I had to make a choice. Thankfully, I do not. <laughs> it was quite a few years after I got my master's degree before I began work on what ended up being uh, a program in um, leading to a Ph.D. in music education and specifically mm-hmm. piano pedagogy. I started on it rather, in a way, serendipitously or accidentally felt that taking some classes or a class in piano pedagogy and taking some piano lessons, both things that I had not done in many years, um, would be a good shot in the arm, so to speak, for (laughs) um, giving a boost to my teaching. And it was 20, 25 years probably, um, at least after completing my first uh, graduate degree Mm. before I began doing that, and then kind of got hooked into the um, excitement and, and stimulation of the collegiate environment and Mm. just kept on and (laughs) kept on and kept on and then eventually it just so happened that (laughs) the the easier way to keep on was to be enrolled in a program Mm -hmm. that led toward the PhD and so that's where nine years later continuing to be a very busy teacher and taking just a couple of courses Mm. or lessons at a time, I completed that degree, too, mm-hmm. <laughs> as as an old lady or at least a middle-aged person. Mm. Um, how has, I mean, how do you think achieving a Ph.D. Uh, changed how you taught? One thing for sure is that it gave me a confidence in myself Mm. um, that I think was a a higher level of confidence than I had had before. Mm -hmm. Not that I felt really insecure, although (laughs) having said that, um, it reminds me that, especially recently, I guess I'm more and more aware of how much I don't know as well as Mm. how much I perhaps do know. But the... The, the confidence level, I think, was certainly mm-hmm. an important part of what I gained from the, from the doctoral study. But all kinds of 
new ideas had come about in that long period of time during which I was teaching and not myself studying. Mm -hmm. There were lots of developments in the the field of music and in the field uh, field of teaching mm-hmm. that I could learn about and and that I think I hope and I believe made me a better, more effective teacher when mm-hmm. I as I continued on. Um, just one rather obvious example is that when I graduated from my undergraduate studies. As far as I knew or had ever heard of, there wasn't such a field described as piano pedagogy. Mm. And now there are piano pedagogy programs um, even 25 years ago when I began working on my uh, doctoral studies. Mm -hmm. Piano pedagogy had become a field of study that was separate from the more generalized study of music that Mm. was in place at the time that I began my undergraduate studies. And so had I wanted to, well, no, I did know that I wanted to be a teacher even when I began my undergraduate work, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't a specific degree program such as there exists today that has that title and that Mm -hmm. specific aim for uh, for its students. Piano pedagogy is a new creation, a new invention (laughs) in the academic world since the time that I began. Right. Well, I mean, that and like you were mentioning that there were other pianists that uh, were definitely focused on performance and that um, it is important to have a distinction between, yes, playing the piano and getting a degree in it so that you can teach versus getting a piano degree so that you can perform as a performer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So going all the way back, uh, when did you start playing piano? I was about six years old. I was told at a little later time that I begged for piano lessons for several (laughs) years before my parents felt that I was old enough to maybe to really know whether I wanted it or maybe they wanted to make sure that I was serious enough about it if right. I kept kept asking for it that <laughs> that I really did want it but mm-hmm. they were always very supportive of me but I there was a piano in our home and my mother and my grandmother who also lived there um, both played the piano and both of them told me later on that they soon stopped playing the piano after I began taking piano lessons because they felt that they weren't as good as I was. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> but my recollection was that I thought what they did was really neat, mm-hmm. really, or as we would say today, really cool. <laughs> and it was something that I really aspired to do, too. Mm-hmm. I admired what they could do and, and enjoyed it and thought it looked like fun. And so I wanted to be like them. Right. <laughs> they were my role models. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what inspired you to continue doing piano? Uh, how, how did you make the decision to uh, make piano and teaching your vocation rather than, I don't know, a real job, as other people might say? <laughs> <laughs> it, I guess it just... 
for the most part, it never really seemed to leave my um, my awareness. Didn't didn't my my mind was always focused in that direction. It mm-hmm. seemed like almost inevitable. I would say. Right. Um, I considered other avenues of uh, music. At one time, I was thinking church music would be my um, direction of applying whatever skills and knowledge I had in the field. Mm-hmm. But um, that kind of went by the wayside. It didn't seem as if that was, in particular, it didn't seem as if piano was something that would be would fit in with that. And uh, teaching at the college level always appealed to me. Mm. And that is, in fact, where most of my teaching has been done, right. although I did begin teaching in the public school at the elementary level. Mm. My very first mm-hmm. paid job as a teacher was at that level, and I certainly enjoyed mm. those youngsters that I worked with for those <laughs> six or seven years. Right. Do you still remember them? Do you still know them? <laughs> um, it was long enough ago that I have no contact with any of those mm. people, and it was in a far distant state as well. Right. Um, <laughs> but yes, I certainly remember um, individuals and general ideas, general recollections about the things that we did. Mm-hmm. My m- music teacher colleagues, um, a few of them I have kept in touch with, mm-hmm. and, and um, in particular the mentor teacher that I um, respected so much when I first began teaching, and I still have contact with her. Hmm. (laughs) Um, Would you recommend that every parent uh, have their child play piano or try to learn piano? Oh, I think it'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) How could I answer otherwise, Santiago? (laughs) Yes, I I think it's an enriching and... Uh, fulfilling thing to do and whether or not I, I think it enriches the, the human being that that participates in music making and that sounds sort of trite or maybe like a cliche but I, I really do believe that and that's that's been my experience with it I'm right now teaching in fact just before your lesson always I have a group of um, Adults in their in their fifties and sixties mm. who are recreational music makers, mm-hmm. and they are people who are absolute. Be- they, a couple of years ago, when they started with me mm-hmm. as a group, um, four of them, uh, they were either absolute beginners or had had piano a long time ago when they were kids, mm-hmm. and not for very long. And Right. Uh, as far as they were concerned, they had basically forgotten anything that they knew mm-hmm. at the time, and they were starting from scratch, wanted to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And we're still having a great time. Yeah. Uh, as far <laughs> as I can tell, they are, and I certainly am, right. uh, making music. So that's a long way to answer your question, mm-hmm. I guess. But um, anybody's life is enriched by by studying music, and I think particularly the piano, because it's a an instrument that where you can make make the music all by yourself or right. with somebody else, but you don't have to have anyone else to do it and come up with a 
a yeah. potentially satisfying result. <laughs> um, that actually is uh, some form of answer to the next question I was going to ask. What What is it about the piano that makes it uh, unique and important to music teaching that uh, makes it different from teaching voice or uh, any other instrument? Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. What I said um, about being able to make music all by yourself, that is a complete package, so to speak, with the low and the high pitches mm-hmm. and all that goes in between, all available to you as a single person, but you can add to that one or many um, colleagues to make music with you. Um, but another thing that makes the piano really basic and why um, I hope that our students understand that always, why every music major is required to study piano, right. whereas every music major is not required to study the trumpet or the flute or mm-hmm. voice. Why is it that we require everyone to study the piano? Well, the piano provides um, a visual and tactile um, reference mm-hmm. to musical notation, unless you really don't care at all about being musically literate, that is, reading, being able to read music, <laughs> the piano provides that visual um, access to the meaning of, of musical symbols mm-hmm. that we refer to in uh, learning a new piece of music that none of the other instruments does. Right. We have black and white keys that are spread out over a, a distance, a space mm-hmm. in actual physical space, uh, comparing it to, I suppose, the, the most different instrument is the voice, where mm-hmm. it's contained within the human body, mm-hmm. and the piano is uh, completely opposite, really, right. in the way that the music is produced. And the, the feeling of distances and spaces, you know that we study, that I emphasize thinking about the musical notation mm-hmm. in intervals and then feeling those intervals under your hand mm-hmm. across the keyboard. All of those things make the, the visual aid of the piano a, an important aid in learning the basics of music and then continuing on from there to learn mm-hmm. um, at a more complex level. Right. Um, what's your favorite instrument outside of the piano? Oh... That's hard to say. <laughs> if it's if it's well done, any instrument, including the voice, is wonderful. But I do really relish hearing string quartets, and mm. I relish the sound of the brass section of an orchestra. Mm. Um, how can I leave out the woodwinds and the percussion <laughs> and the singers? <laughs> Those are just some things that I particularly enjoy but mm-hmm. it's it's really hard to say one is my most favorite of all <laughs> i did play uh violin and viola when i was a kid and on into college and graduate school even and played the clarinet for a short time and the bassoon mm-hmm. and have at one point in my life um spent quite a lot of time playing recorders, the old instruments. Mm. <laughs> so or now the elementary instruments. <laughs> that too. Yes. Yeah, there. Um there's been an 
a, a surge in interest in historical performance. Mm-hmm. And of course, here at UCO, we have a, a center for historical right, yeah. performance, as you know, mm-hmm. um, where recorders are part of the part of the game. Mm-hmm. And that was something that that I was interested in and did practice for for a time. So it's it's pretty hard for me to nail down a particular favorite. <laughs> right. Um, uh, do you compose music? That's something I've never had any natural inclination to do, it mm. seems. Um, strangely enough, I wasn't required to take a composition class as an undergraduate or even mm. in my master's study, but I guess uh, I felt that I ought to at least experience that in a kind of, you might say, an academic way, mm-hmm. taking it as a class. And so as an elective, after I'd completed my master's, the summer after I completed my master's, I signed up for a class mm-hmm. with a composer in Minnesota where I was living at the time and did take composition lessons and found it very difficult <laughs> and challenging there just weren't melodies and harmonies and rhythms in my head that were my own invention. Mm. There were lots that stayed there from other composers' <laughs> music, but it wasn't something that I seemed to be able to come up with, especially in the way that it appeared other people were doing. Mm. Where does the where does the melody come from? <laughs> where does the harmony come from for you as a composer? And although I know this is supposed to be my interview, I'm, sure. I'm always <laughs> interested in in that from the point of view of somebody who who does that and f- finds it to be um, maybe a natural form of expression. I think, in a way, um, it's it's far simpler than thinking of it as you know trying to make something new or trying to. Mm. Uh, formulate something that hasn't been done before it's it's really just I make it up mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know obviously it, it's it's impossible to make something entirely original um, but to to get hung up on the idea that oh this has probably been done before um, is not it's not the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so to to create something to express oneself um, or even just to experiment with an idea and mm-hmm. how it can musically come across, um, that's sort of more the point. Exploring as an art um, and expressing uh, whether it be my own feelings or just ideas um yeah just make it up (laughs) manipulating the materials yeah (laughs) and when the assignment with this um adventure in taking (laughs) a a composition class when the assignment was to make up a melody Mm -hmm. well okay how do you do that (laughs) it just to someone like yourself, mm. I think it it just happens in your mind somehow. Mm. 
And what <laughs> do you do when it doesn't just happen in mm-hmm. your mind? How do you come up with something? I'm not yes. sure. <laughs> just, uh, I mean, scales and such, uh, all, all concepts that aren't, you know, foreign to any musician, but, uh, how can you apply a scale and pick notes within that scale in a certain order? It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Um, but just you take a series of tools and what is at your disposal and go, well, if I have to make a melody, maybe it has to be in a key, maybe it has to use a certain mode, maybe it has to. And so you get certain parameters that allow you to work within a space or else. So in a way, you set your own uh, limits or boundaries. Right. And then you work within those. And they may, yeah. they may be more, uh, more broad sometimes and much more restricted mm-hmm. some, on, you know, on other occasions. Right. And uh, a sandbox is not necessarily conducive to the best creativity, even when posed with a sandbox, uh, a lot of creative people will set their own limitations in order to be creative because having infinite possibilities really isn't conducive to making anything because mm-hmm. there uh, are too many things <laughs> to choose from. Right. Yeah. Um, what was my next? Okay. Um, a rather broad question. Um, what is the importance of music? Wow. <laughs> a broad question indeed. Uh, communication of one human being to another or to another to a group of others in a form different from any other. Mm-hmm. We communicate in various kinds of ways, and that's certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. But I'd say it is a form of communication. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly unique. <laughs> it is unique. Um, and I, I've thought about this a lot, uh, how um, what makes music unique from other art forms. Um, for one, uh, it's temporal. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so how has the, uh, how is the concept of time important to music? <laughs> hmm. Well, music has a beginning and an end. Not sure. <laughs> it's kind of an open-ended question. Right, right. Well, yeah, and intentionally, of course, I'm sure. <laughs> you sure that was on my list? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm teasing, but it's it's an interesting thing to ponder. It's even when it's captured on a recording, which mm-hmm. we can now do that 
people hundreds of years ago could not. Mm-hmm. It's there's still a a beginning and an end. Mm-hmm. And thinking about a piece of visual art, for instance, some of the things that I'm seeing around this room. Right. Um, it's once it's created and the creator decides that it's finished, it's there mm-hmm. for anyone to see at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, music has to be recreated again mm-hmm. and again if it's going to be shared. Right. So I guess the um, what what's a word for it? <laughs> the elusive mm. nature of music is something that differentiates it from um, visual art, for sure. Mm-hmm. It happens over a period of time. And once it's happened, it'll never happen again in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. And then I suppose you could say, well, there's a recording of it. So then it's going to be exactly the same. And I guess maybe that's true, but you still have to <laughs> activate that recording. Mm-hmm. That and then the recording is only a a shade of the original sound, the original mm-hmm. vibrations mm-hmm. that occurred whenever stuff goes through a microphone, it is altered. Whenever it goes through the thing that makes it louder, uh, it's altered again. Mm-hmm. Whenever it goes, it's at least right now, it's being converted into uh, zeros and ones into a computer. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's being altered again. And so in a way, uh, even still, if you record any piece of music, it's still never going to be heard the same way again um, because that is what was happening at that moment. And so the recording just resembles the mm-hmm. original creation. It's, it's a reasonable facsimile of, <laughs> of the original. And, of, of course, the, the sound will be determined by a number of factors, the equipment on which it was recorded, the equipment on which it is it is played back, the room in which you're exactly hearing it, <laughs> the room in which it was performed, mm-hmm. all of those are different each time that right. that it's <laughs> going to be heard. And even the if it if for example I listen to a recording that I like now and I listened to it a week ago, mm-hmm. then I'm different. Right. My ears have gotten older, for example, mm-hmm. and well, probably all kinds of factors mm-hmm. that you experience that, that I'm not thinking about right this minute, but mm-hmm. maybe even the the mood that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Th- that's certainly true now that I say it. One of the most stunning for for me stunning memories is hearing the Sibelius Second Symphony played by the um, Cleveland Orchestra under the a, a legendary conductor George Schulte um, and why that particular t- time 
that I heard that particular piece. <laughs> I believe it was probably the first time that I heard it. It's a long time ago. But I, I can't sing you every single note or m- motif in that, mm. in that symphony, but it was just something that made an enormous impression on me at the mm. time. And still now... I look forward to the possibility of hearing that that piece with great anticipation. Mm. And mm-hmm. our Oklahoma City Philharmonic played that piece just um, a month or two ago, and I was very excited to hear it, and, mm-hmm. and it was a wonderful experience. Again, Yeah. something that <laughs> I, I wonder why did that particular piece at that particular time in my life, in that particular occasion, impressed me so strongly. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't tell you, mm-hmm. but it did and continues to do so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in a way, the importance of music, we don't really know, but it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, would be, it would be a very um, bleak life without it. It's hard even to imagine. <laughs> Um, given your experience in teaching, um, over the years, what is something that you've found yourself telling students over and over again? (laughs) Both different students, but also the same students telling them Mm -hmm. the same thing. Oh, there are probably quite a few things. Um, the, the immediate thing that came to my mind was, be patient with yourself. Mm-hmm. I think more than, as I consider your question, the, the hardest thing is the um, belief that something is going to, that perfection is possible. Mm-hmm. And that belief underlies the nervousness that many people experience when they perform or even when they come to take a lesson, that they're not going to be perfect. And so I find myself regularly saying, don't try to be perfect. And the first time I say that to any given person, usually they look startled. (laughs) What do you mean, don't try to be perfect? That sounds like just the opposite of what you should be telling me. (laughs) But perfection is not going to be achievable, and then we are likely to discuss that for a minute. And the, the student will say, well, yes, I'm a human being, and we know human beings are not perfect. Mm-hmm. So the idea that I might produce a per- perfect performance is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But then still I'm expecting that of myself, and when it doesn't happen, I'm disappointed. <laughs> so there's a, a, a built-in contradiction and a built-in um, determination that you will be disappointed if your expectation mm-hmm. <laughs> is that what I'm going to term unrealistic one, mm-hmm. that you're going to practice so hard that you're going to be perfect, you're going to play perfectly, or you're going to sing perfectly. Mm-hmm. It, it won't happen. So let's instead plan to do our very best and plan how we will overcome the imperfections that we know will happen. Mm. And the achievement of the carrying on in spite of the imperfections will Mm -hmm. be one of the beauties Mm -hmm. and unique 
elements of that very performance. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. same mistakes won't happen each time, Mm -hmm. although some of them will will, um, maddeningly come back again (laughs) and again. But each performance will be, however slight, however slightly different from the all the others because your um, encountering of difficulty unexpected or expected and how you overcome it how you mm-hmm. carry on beyond it mm-hmm. is what will make that performance unique um, it's interesting that that is one of the things that you tell students more often because much less so is that a a musical instruction than it is a a life instruction to I guess so try yeah. not to be perfect but to do your best mm-hmm. uh that as mistakes continue to happen um you try your best to overcome them um which yeah you, applicable to music but also applicable to everywhere else life in general <laughs> yeah i think so um rising above circumstances is something that we tend to admire and and highlight in the lives of people who have overcome great ad- mm-hmm. adversity and in a much smaller way what i've just said is a representation of that of that phenomenon mm-hmm. um, carrying forward in life is that way <laughs> um what is an interest of yours that others may not know about? Outside of music, obviously. <laughs> I really like watching Thunder Basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Although if you know me for any length of time, you might discover that that's the case. Um, and I'm very interested in movies. I really like people, <laughs> meeting different people, um, people from all walks of life and people who... Uh, come from other uh, locations, other countries. I don't know whether those are things that people know about me or not. (laughs) Well, you also mentioned how um, your undergrad was also had a focus in English literature. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, what is the uh, literature that you tend to focus on or keep coming back to or that you particularly enjoy? Um, I like to read, but I read um, slowly and I'd say relatively infrequently do I spend any long period of time. Um, I keep books and periodicals right by the toilet <laughs> so that where I know I'm going to spend a little time each day, sure. I'm, I have something that I may pick up and, and look at there. But um, nonfiction seems to be what always gets to me, hmm. much more likely than fiction, although certain, um, certain fiction works will grab my attention, too. And then that's often rather surprising. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the Harry Potter series. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but haven't read them all, have seen all the movies. <laughs> um, but that that is fiction that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess reading memoirs or historical uh, accounts about real people and real events seems to, to be much more mm-hmm. um, attractive and appealing to me in reading than something that is fictional. Mm -hmm. But just very recently, I got caught Mm -hmm. so that I really literally could not lay down a a very interesting story that was fictional Mm -hmm. and absolutely stayed up practically all night (laughs) to finish the story. I guess it was evidence of the great skill of that author to paint a very realistic Mm. um, set of characters. (laughs) Um, Switching gears into uh, probably the less comfortable questions. Um, But um, what is the role of spirituality or religion in your life? For a long part of my life, as long as I can remember, as early as I can remember, and through to middle age, I was very active in uh, conventional, established religious um, institution. And in the more recent part of my life, I'm completely separated from any established traditional religious institution. Um, I think that does not mean that I don't have a spiritual life, mm. um, but it's it's not in an organized um, institutional form. Sure. <laughs> um, do I believe in God? I'm not sure. I'm at the point where I'd say I'm what I would call an uh, agnostic, one who is not sure, Mm -hmm. one who doesn't know, is there a spiritual being, something that might be called God? I don't know. My own personal experience does not lead me to um, the kind of moment that I can pinpoint as this is when I experienced God. Mm -hmm. And there are certainly a number of people I have known, do Mm -hmm. know, who can point to such a time. Mm -hmm. But I cannot. And Mm. after a certain point, the teachings of the um, organized religion, the denominational religions that I've been acquainted with, didn't make sense. They, mm. they didn't seem to fit with what, it, what I was being told was what God was like. Mm-hmm. My experiences and what I was being taught didn't, didn't mesh. Mm-hmm. And so participating in the religious services of a traditional denomination, there wasn't it wasn't meaningful and was in fact disturbing because it wasn't meaningful i guess hmm. didn't didn't fit with my own experiences and so i felt it was a 
uh, I was living a lie or I was a, a behaving in a in a deceitful way if I mm. practiced in any way the religious um, traditions that I had had to that point been practicing. Mm -hmm. It just didn't seem that it was honest. Mm. So I stopped doing it. Mm -hmm. um, over a relatively short period of time, I suppose, I kind of weaned myself away from it, feeling guilty, uncomfortable, unfamiliar with the territory that I was entering, but eventually feeling that that was really the only way that I hmm. could continue. Hmm. Um, was it just any particular experience, or was it just over time that um, you sort of gathered the information and made a decision? <laughs> uh, certainly over time, because I was a part of institutional religion uh, for a good number of years, um, on into my 40s. And um, so I, it wasn't something that I'd experienced so briefly that I think I could just drop it mm -hmm. like a hot potato. It was, <laughs> it was um, actually, I think, kind of painful. And uh, in, a, in a way of speaking, had withdrawal symptoms hmm. um, as I was weaning myself from something that had been a part of my life and experience mm -hmm. for such a long time. But it seemed the only way that I could feel I was being honest with myself. Mm. And so that's where I've mm -hmm. ended up. I couldn't ever get to the point where I would say, I do not believe in, that there is a God. Mm. And I know too many people who seem to be um, smart people and honest people who have had experiences that, that are different from my own, mm. where this is a very meaningful thing to them. And right. I couldn't be respectful of my fellow human beings who, who say that this has been their experience mm -hmm. and deny that for them, even if I choose this mm -hmm. path for myself. Mm -hmm. um, how do you still experience uh spirituality uh now that you don't take part in a sort of institutional organized fashion of spirituality i think that there's a hmm how to express it is maybe a little more difficult than just how i experience it but I guess there's a, and this sounds kind of corny as I'm thinking it and as I'm about to say it, but I think there's a, a spark of divinity in every human being mm. that um, connects us with one another. And this, um, this is what I experience. Wow, it, it, it makes me kind of... Um, emotional hmm. as I am thinking about this and then speaking the words to you. Um, but that connection with another human being is what I'd say is the spirituality that 
that I experience at this point in my life mm-hmm. um, with most human beings that I do encounter mm-hmm. it's a it's a very good thing and even with people that I disagree with very strongly on certain um, topics perhaps there's a connection a human connection that I I think is undeniable. Mm-hmm. There's a, a a worthiness to that other individual that I believe is in myself, and that I therefore must acknowledge in that other person <laughs> of a value to that humanity. Yeah. Um. Do you experience that connection uh, through music, especially through music, rather? Yes, I I think I can quickly say yes to that question. It's a it's a specific kind of experience. Having a conversation such as we're doing now is a connection mm-hmm. that you and I can experience. Um, Making music together, if we sit and play a duet, or mm-hmm. if you play and I listen, or I play and you listen, mm-hmm. um, that's a particular kind of connection, but not the only one, mm-hmm. but a very important one, one I would not want ever to be without completely. Right. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, you've made it such an important part of your life that you've continued to do so. <laughs> right. Um, so then you already answered the the God question. Um, do you believe in free will? And I guess you might also need to define your definition of free will. Well, you know, that's interesting. The denomination in which I uh, grew up and probably would still claim if I uh, did participate in an organized religion is Presbyterian. And the there is a sort of a perception, I would say, in, in the de- denomination itself and by people outside that denomination that there's a belief that there isn't free will, that we are predestined is usually the word, mm-hmm. um, by something outside our own power mm-hmm. to be a certain way or to end up in a certain place, mm-hmm. to behave a certain way. And that just is outside my experience. I, I can't, I can't uh, agree with that. Mm. I th- mm-hmm. think that um, we have choices that we can make about whatever happens to us in our lives. And whatever we choose then we'll determine what happens next to some degree Mm -hmm. and there are things that are many many things that are outside our control that will affect our lives but the only thing that we can do is react Mm -hmm. and I think that we have the freedom to do that Mm -hmm. and if that seems like not very much freedom then I guess that's <laughs> then that's true. Sure, that, that is what um, my experience leads me to conclude 
that yes, we have, we can always make choices. Some are harder to make than others, and some seem inevitable, and maybe I'm mistaken too. <laughs> um, and speaking of those choices, um, what does it mean to make good choices or to be a good person? Being kind. I think that's tops. Mm-hmm. I've experienced a few people in, in my life who are what seem to me unkind, and many people who, have, um, who are very kind or who have many moments of kindness. And that seems, I guess, like the top mm-hmm. um, thing that makes somebody be a good person is to to exhibit kindness towards towards oneself, mm-hmm. but certainly toward other people. Mm-hmm. Um, how does one be kind? <laughs> well, here's where you could pull up a, a standard from organized religion, mm-hmm. the golden rule, treat other people the way you'd like to be treated yourself. What, mm-hmm. what would feel good to you if you did it to somebody else? is what you would like to experience if they were treating you in a similar way. Mm-hmm. That's how to be kind. Right. <laughs> um, do you think that people are predisposed to be bad or good or neither? <laughs> I read that question on the, the list of questions you provided for me, and I kind of went back and forth, but... I think without, I, I just have to go with the idea that people are inclined toward good at some level in their nature, and that if they turn out to be what seems to be a bad person, that it's gone against their, their innate mm-hmm. self somehow. How exactly that happens for any person or group of people, I couldn't say. Yeah. But I'm going to have to vote for the, for the <laughs> goodness being the, the way people are. Mm-hmm. Um, how have the values of our culture changed throughout your life? if they've changed at all, actually. (laughs) Oh, yes, I'm sure they have. (laughs) Certainly the way people behave is always changing, I guess, and what's Mm -hmm. acceptable in society. Um, Mm -hmm. I imagine you could could look back through history and at any, any period of time you would see changes. But um, an interesting nonfiction book that I'm <laughs> currently struggling to read is, has an interesting title, Thank You for Being Late. But it, its basic uh, premise is the rapidity of change that's occurring in this modern time mm-hmm. and how uh, difficult it is to, for human beings to adjust to that. Mm-hmm. Because the rate of change is so great. Attitudes and behaviors because of them um, 
are are changing and then the technology that is such a part of our world now mm-hmm. is so one thing builds on another so that you never you're never going backwards to start over again you don't have to reinvent the wheel as as they say mm-hmm. um and that's always been true, but the technology mm, developments are accessible to everybody in the world now. And so everybody can use what everybody else has developed mm-hmm. to propel them forward to whatever they're going to develop mm-hmm. in such a way that the rate of change is just... Um, exponential is the word that the author keeps using, mm-hmm. and it's just um, amazing mm-hmm. and unfathomable, really, <laughs> to to imagine where it's going to be in just a very short time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's really a direct answer to your question, <laughs> but um, we could pull out any any number of examples of <laughs> behaviors that are different now from what mm-hmm. they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. I guess um, for myself, I'm more interested in in values, how at least from my perception that uh, modern culture, at least in America, is, is so self-focused, self-valuing that um, people seem to have little interest in caring for one another um, at least in the the general sense Um, and so I I wonder if if we've gotten more selfish as a society at least in America or um Maybe if it's always been this way or we've actually gotten less selfish. I don't know. Well, I'll have to start out by saying I don't know either. Hmm. But um, certainly in our in our America, which is the only the, the only place where I have ever lived for any hmm. ex- any period of time. Uh, there is a, a sense of entitlement. Um, whatever I can get for myself is is what I'm entitled to, mm-hmm. and I'm that's going to be the focus of my activity, is mm-hmm. to see how good I can make things for myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is putting a lie to what I just said a short time ago <laughs> about people being really at their at their core that they're really good. Maybe not. Well, I think there's a there's a comparison between the two, though, because it's it's more about how we as a culture have sort of pressured each other or, you know, the the zeitgeist, if if you will, has um, influenced that uh, predisposition. And so if you feel as though, yeah, maybe we have a predisposition for being good, but the culture itself is sort of pushing in the other direction. 
what is the culture other <laughs> than the collective activity of those individuals? Um, in a way, the the parameters in place by which we we interact and by which we can make decisions. Um, for example, that the the values that a person in a culture that encourages a free market um, might be different from those in a culture that encourages uh, taking care of your fellow man. Um, and, and in that way, comparing the, the influence that culture has in America versus what it is in Sweden, um, that that sort of perception, um, or zeitgeist influences the way that we interact and make decisions or um, spend our money even, um, and that, that is something that, you know, I have thought about lately, um, especially given the political climate. Um, but, um, since I am so affected by it, um, <laughs> and so that's, that's kind of something that I wonder about, um, if, uh, people have gotten more selfish as the culture has changed over time. It certainly seems like it. <laughs> would be my immediate reaction. Um, the people who are in power and therefore are having the greatest influence on the direction that our country is taking mm -hmm. are, to my perception, very, very um, self-centered and unconcerned with anything but themselves mm -hmm. and themselves at the expense of anyone else right. is their m mode of operating. Mm -hmm. And the possibility exists that that will um, push a larger number of people to react against that if if they find that appalling mm -hmm. or at least not appealing. <laughs> um, and maybe it will activate people who have otherwise been complacent mm -hmm. um, into taking action to fulfill what I have earlier said I thought mm -hmm. was our mm -hmm. nature mm -hmm. to be concerned about other mm -hmm. people. Mm. But I always have to make a disclaimer that I could be wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, how would we... Uh, sort of inject more positivity in our culture? Well, there's no doubt that we must begin where we are 
Mm. Um, I'm one person. I can have um, hopefully some influence over my own behavior. And beyond that, I may be able to influence other people because of what I do. But that's where I have to begin. Mm -hmm. If I think being kind, as I earlier stated, Mm -hmm. is so important, then it's pretty darn important that Mm -hmm. I make every effort to to do that myself, to -hmm. behave that way myself. And then hope that that will influence anyone I come in contact with to be that way too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Last question. Uh, What advice do you have for people? Be kind. (laughs) Make music. (laughs) I'm not sure that I... It, It seems rather arrogant to think, I guess, that... I'd be in a position to advise all people. <laughs> but it, my experience leads me to say what I just did, mm-hmm. that if we can live our lives aiming to be kind, that that would be a worthy goal for anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, lucky for you, all people do not listen to this podcast. And so you're only giving advice to some people. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Owen, thank you for doing this with me. It's a pleasure, Santiago. (laughs) I'm I'm honored that you asked me to to join you and talk. Um, It's obviously not often that I get to have someone uh, of your experience um, and of your expertise, uh, on the podcast and so I'm glad to have you um, <laughs> thank you this is usually the part where people plug the things that they're doing either on the internet or in the public sphere so where can we uh, support you or find your things uh, so that we can uh, encourage people to act in favor of you <laughs> Um, I could most easily be contacted through UCO <laughs> and the website is uco.edu <laughs> and my name is Linda Owen if, if you were to find the UCO website and um, search use the search to find my name that would be the easiest way to make contact <laughs> Unless you want want me to give a phone number and I can do no, that, no. but I don't think do that's, not do that. that's probably <laughs> not what you're after. Um, and then are there any uh, public performances that you'd like people to come to and show support either of your performing or other people that you'd like to support? I personally have no public performances coming up, but there are... Um, I probably hundreds of performances that happen throughout a school year at UCO alone. (laughs) And I think it's wonderful to support um, the students who are doing them and the 
the faculty and staff members who, mm -hmm. who make present, musical presentations. And not only is it wonderful to support them, but it's a, a win-win situation because, right. you, because you can enjoy um, and experience all kinds of great music and mm -hmm. interesting stuff that you may never have heard before right. or heard of before. Mm -hmm. Lots of good stuff going on. Yeah. <laughs> Just check the UCO website for that, too. Yeah. Find the calendar. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you uh, once again. I'm Santiago Ramones. And I'm Linda Owen. Um, this is the part where I have to plug all of my things, so forgive my very long spiel. Um, you can find all the things that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. Uh, I make music as well as this podcast. Uh, you can leave reviews on uh, the app or whatever it is that you use to listen to this podcast. Uh, you can leave a comment. You can let me know what you think about the conversations that I've had. Um, but you can also listen to music that I've made that is also on my website. Uh, you can download or pay for um, music that I have on my Bandcamp. Um, and I am preparing other performances. I think by the time that this podcast goes up, I will have performed on March 16th. So that will be too late to announce that, but, uh, perhaps not too late to announce that I will be performing at Metro Music Fest, uh, which is on April 6th. Um, and then I'll probably provide more details for that as that becomes closer um, I always end my podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.